this week on Dig Me Out. From Mongo With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we're back with a roundtable, and it is a series that we like to call Sophomore Slump Revisited. It's one of my favorites that we do, Jay. How about you? Yeah, it's fun to be able to dig into a record, uh, look at it from every angle, and get some other opinions. So yeah, these are fun. So the last one we did in the fall of 2017 was the... Silver Chair Freak Show Sophomore Slump Revisited. Oh, yes, yes. And yes. and joined on that show, uh, we had uh, a couple of guys who have been on the show many times. And we said, well, we're doing a sophomore slump. We got to bring back our, our slump crew. Our, <laughs> our uh, you know, you've heard of a scrum master in project management. These are our sure. slump masters. <laughs> wow. I've been working on that for a while. Were... Feel free to put that on LinkedIn. Yeah, guys, <laughs> definitely add this, add this to certified your, uh, slump master. Certified slump master. <sighs> okay, from a very warm part of the country, Jeff Tack is from Rocket Fuel Podcast. Jeff, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's good to be um, considered a slump master. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, we haven't we haven't made the. Um, certificates yet but we will be mailing those out soon so you can take that you need to get it renewed once a year with a there's a 400 question uh two-hour test that you have to take on sophomore slumps but that's uh yeah there we go (laughs) and then from a not warm part of the country (laughs) colder than where i'm at the uh the guy who runs the uh sit and spin vidcast with uh Joe, that'd be Joe Royland. Welcome back to the show, Joy. Joe, how's it? <laughs> how's it going, guys? I, I am proud to be a slump master in good standing as myself. So. Are are we the only ones that uh, call you Joy, or does that happen a lot? Uh, oh, it happens a lot. It happens all okay. uh, I, I actually have a cousin who would who would call me that all the time. I'll, okay. I'll explain off the air where that came out. I just read something like right before the show, and it, the word Joy was in it, and it, of course. It's still logged into my brain, but I don't want to do that while we're while we're talking, and then I have to edit it all out because it's not relevant to the podcast at all. Anyway, let's talk about the album that is our slump revisited option for this episode, and that is the sophomore album J from mm-hmm. a band called Space Hog. It's their album. Well, it's called the Chinese album. As a matter of fact, it came out in March of nineteen ninety eight. I actually had a little bit of trouble finding sophomore slumps because by the time we got into 1998, a lot of bands were on their third record already. You know, they put out a record like 91 or 92. Then they did another one in like 94, 95, you know, or maybe 93, something like that. And uh, Uh 1998, a lot of bands were already on their third record. So actually finding a qualifier for this was a little bit more difficult than I was expecting. However, this is a very interesting sophomore slump 
and I'll, I'll get into why here with some stats. So their first album came out in October of 1995. That's Resident Alien, and everybody knows that record because of the single In the Meantime. That was a number one single in the U.S. Went to number one wow. on the U.S. mainstream chart. Went to number two on the U.S. modern rock chart. Charted in the top 50 in Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Sweden, and the U.K., with a number one single, Jay, on the mainstream chart, number two on the modern rock chart. The album, of course, sold well. It went gold in the U.S. and platinum in Canada. It reached number 49 in the U.S., number 40 in the U.K., number 50 in Australia, number 27 in Canada. So they had a pretty big freshman effort when it came to uh, sales, and that video was all over MTV for, in the meantime, ubiquitous, you would say. So this yes. album comes out three years later, which is a lot of time in 1990s wow. time, March of yep. 1998. This album did not chart in the United States. Just didn't make a dent. The yep. single Mungo City made it to number 19 on the U.S. mainstream chart and number 21 in the modern rock chart. It didn't chart anywhere else in the world except for the U.K. where it made it to number 82. So quite a bit of difference, and that's where I'm drawing my sophomore slump inspiration from. This was a massive slump in terms of performance. Now, was it a slump in terms of album? That's what we're going to try to figure out on this record or on this episode. I want to mention we have we're missing one person. Andy Dare was supposed to be on this episode, but uh, he fell ill right before the show. So we want to give a shout out to uh, Andy. He's been on the show many a time. He's uh he's got a new venture, Blue Village Vinyl in uh, Westmont, Illinois. It's a record store and uh you should go check it out. They're open during the week and on weekends and you can buy vinyl and CDs in there. I don't know. I wonder if Andy actually put his personal collection up for sale in there. He's got like 4 billion CDs or something yeah. like that. I wonder if I wonder if he stripped out any of the stuff that he hasn't listened to in the last 20 years and and stuck it in there uh hope you feel better andy well by the time this airs you it will be like a week and a half so i if you're not well yet i would definitely seek out a doctor because that's a long time <laughs> please get medical attention immediately get medical exactly so let me i want to ask uh joe i want to start with you this album the chinese album what's your recollection of when it came out did you buy it did you listen to it? Did you hear it? Did you ignore it? What what happened? Um, well, as with most records back at that time where I was working in a record store, I got it as a promo, so I okay. got it for free. But I was excited to hear it because I loved the first album. I saw the band live on the first tour. Uh, Tracy Bonham opened for them. They put on a great live show. Um, I, used, I played that first album all the time. So I was excited to hear this. But I remember um, listening to it and thinking... Okay, you know, and I remember Mungo City getting a little bit of hype. I think it got played on the radio up here on the alternate rock stations for maybe a month, if that, and then never hearing anything from the record again, whereas you can still hear in the meantime, to this day, on the same alternative rock station, they'll still play it. Right. Jeff, what about you? Same question. Did you did you pick it up when it came out? Did you even know about it when it came out? Yeah, so my... Um my answer is like the exact opposite of Joe's. Um, I wasn't even aware of this record um, actually until you reached out to me about doing this episode about four months ago. 
And um, I was, I was, I, that seems really weird. Like, why would you want to be on a podcast where you're talking about a record you've never heard? But I, Space Hog was always a band that I was kind of interested in as far as what their sound was. And just knowing that this album that was basically forgotten, you know, by a band that had, you know, one of the quintessential songs of the 90s, um, right. you know, it was kind of fascinating to me. And so um, I was not aware of it one bit when it came out in 1998. Okay. Jay, what about you? Uh, I don't know if you were much of a Space Hog fan or not, or... Uh, yeah, well, I I, uh, I always liked in the meantime because I always thought his voice at the time really stood out from the pack. Uh, I d- didn't get Resident Alien immediately when it came out, but I always liked that song when it came on the radio. I actually thought he kind of sounds like Axl Rose, especially on that song, which was odd at the time to be on the radio <laughs> and have a, a singer that sounded like that. Uh, and I liked Mungo City a lot when I heard that single. Um, three years later when this came out. So I went and got this record as soon as it came out because I was pretty excited that the rest of the record was going to be like that. Um, actually, also in co- <laughs> I just remembered this. In college, uh, I was a graphic design student, so I did one of my projects on redesigning the the album packaging for this record. So Really? I, I, yeah, yeah. Can you Do you still have that? Can you dig that up? Can we I, that it was like a... a I like built a box. It was like a box. It was like a, like a, what do you call it? Like a cedar box. And it was very elaborate. Oh, (laughs) you know that CDs aren't in cedar boxes though, Jay, right? Like, look, (laughs) I'm, I'm in art school, Tim. Is that what they teach you there? Yes. You express yourself with uh, this thing called creativity. That would have been awesome (laughs) if they were like, Hey, we love this design. We're going to re-release the album in a cedar box. <laughs> it it and may have sold better. The cover would probably was much better. Yeah. Uh, so I don't remember when this came out. I but I when I put the album on, I remembered the single. I think I thought this single was from the next album called The Hogacy because that album title is so bad. And I think I got the the albums confused for a long time because I didn't really pay attention when this came out and. I, I thought that the Hogacy was their next record for for a long time, just based on you know before Wikipedia, like in the early two thousands. So uh, it, it, this actually helped clear up my confusion with their timeline because I didn't really I I don't even know that I've actually listened to the first record all the way through. Um, I'm I think I've listened to it in bits and pieces, but not really. I, I like the single, but never really was compelled to listen to anything else off of it. So, I want to mention, we got some comments from our Patreon folks over at patreon.com forward slash digmeout. Scott Witt says, I remember liking the first album a lot. I barely remember the second. They waited too long to do their sophomore effort. That might come up. It was three years. Rory Stevens says, while I was introduced to Space Hog like many their hit single in the meantime this album was a really terrific follow-up while mungo city and carry on really stood out on this album the whole album is really creative and enjoyable even better is their latest album 2013's as it is on earth which i strongly recommend to dig me out staff and listeners that's you and me jay we're staff (laughs) are we okay well and our intern yeah we don't give a name to because he hasn't earned it Peppy? Yes, Peppy. Well, hey, no name. Oh, sorry. And then uh, Retention Pond Honeys says, damn fine album. 
This was late 90s taking risks time. Glam was almost a thing. See also Mechanical Animals this same year. Interesting. True. Interesting note. Yeah, there was definitely a tilt towards some glam rock in the um in the I guess in the late 90s with uh Mechanical Animals and uh Holes, which called what's that album called? Um I'm, I'm blanking on it. The second uh Celebrity oh, Skin? Yeah. Yes. They they glammed it up. Yeah, their look. Imperial Drag was another band. This is the year of Velvet Goldmine. That that yeah. album came out this year, um, and you have bands like Placebo, which are doing a, a glamier look, mm-hmm. and uh, not necessarily sound. They're they're not going that direction. But although um, they were on the Velvet Goldmine soundtrack, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in the movie, like, like Shudder to Think and and Pulp, and there were a lot of. Like I guess you'd say mixed. Uh, there were some like bands that weren't full time bands. Uh, what was it? The um, Wild Rats. Is that yes. the one? That's yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like a couple different people doing yeah. that band. Anyway, so there was definitely a an interest in some glamier aspects of of rock music at this time of the uh, of the decade. So let's talk about the single first, Mungo City. It didn't chart as well as In the Meantime. Even though that we, you know, as we're talking about here, there's some there was some glam interest from some artists and stuff. I don't feel like uh, other than the Mechanical Animals album, which had a big impact. Um, you know, Velvet Goldmine is kind of a cult film. It's not a that wasn't that was an art house film compared to, you know, most movies released that year. And Mungo City's pretty like '70s glam T Rex Bowie sounding. Am I off in thinking that that maybe even though it's a cool song it's not a radio single for 1998 in terms of uh what was getting popular and and what was being played on the radio especially on an alternative rock radio at this point this late in the decade i'll just start to you guys to debate that whether you think it's uh was a, actually a strong single or not well, I have to. I mean, I already said I, I like the song quite a bit. So, um, but was it a I was, good single choice? It's about as good as the record can offer. I mean, <laughs> in hindsight, yeah. not to skip too far ahead, but yeah, was it different? Yeah, um, but that's kind of what I liked about it. I, I think there was a lot of. It was a time of transition, so I, I, I don't remember like a consistent kind of sound. For 98, it seemed like there was a lot of experimentation going on, and uh, this was one one new direction that seemed to be emerging that, that I liked, but what about everybody else? Jeff or I, Joe? Um, uh, this is Jeff. I would kind of disagree just a little bit in that I don't know if I would have chosen Mungo City as the first single off of the record. I, I feel like I would have chosen one of the more popular songs. Um on the record, like maybe Goodbye Violet Race or Lucy Shoe or one of those um, from the record. Again, just trying to think about, I can't imagine like what the band would have been in a position as far as like, you know, having a song like In the Meantime, which is just everywhere. Um, I, I feel like if they'd wanted to try to, I don't know, you can't really recreate that kind of a thing, but you know, to try to get some spark lit, I feel like I would have chosen one of the poppier songs, even though the record as a whole is you know, much more glam and, you know, you know, experimental. See no more 
much all the songs in the album mungo city may have been the most obvious choice but i'm also going to echo jeff and say that if not that goodbye violet race i had in my notes as being probably the other likely candidate for a single off this record you know um i don't want to get jumped too far ahead here either but otherwise I, I i would say that you know there's there's two tracks on this album the opening cut and the ending cut that sound modern and everything else is a throwback love letter to the past. Whereas, you know, uh, their first album was very much, uh, they rode the, the hype of Britpop, even though they weren't really a Britpop band, they definitely rode the hype of that wave getting their popularity. And then they come and make a record that sounds nothing like it. It's fair because, you know, as you're mentioning, this record's all over the place. I think you, everybody's, I don't know if Jay, if Jay, if you brought that up yet, but this is a pretty diverse record and trying to pinpoint, I think Goodbye Violent Race is probably your, you guys are right, it's probably the best second option for a single because so much of this record is, I mean, there's like attempts at like uh, sort of a groovy funk, you know, mid-slow tempo electronic stuff going on and then there's like, a song that sounds like a, I think is it Captain Freeman? That sounds like it was a, uh, a, a B side to an early Supergrass album. Yeah, I would agree with that definitely. Yeah. And there's, you know, Michael Stipes and, on this record on Almond Kisses. And I was going to say, Captain Freeman, the only thing that just shot that down as being a single is that he says shit repeatedly throughout the song. So that was never going to get airplay. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then there's some weird, like, attempts at, I don't know if it's, like, country. This is Stones. There's, like, the one track, Anonymous, towards the end of it, has got a very country Stones vibe to it. Yeah. Yep. But it's weird because it, the way the parts shift, right? Yeah, it's, it, and like even that song around. is like, yeah, it's like three different styles of song in one song, right? It, it, I think you hit it, Tim. You said you know love letters to, the, or, or was it Joe that said love letters to the past? I mean, uh, as I go through my notes on this record, I just every song almost can narrow down like the band or the style that they're 
paying homage to. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of it's Bowie, <laughs> different yeah. stages of Bowie. Like here's the early seventies glam rock Bowie, like Ziggy Stardust Bowie. Here's Berlin era Bowie. Here's um, the one that had fame and and uh, um, let's dance. No, no, that's... no, earlier. Young Americans. Young Thank Americans. You. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that album, that kind of soul R and B vibe, funky Bowie. So it's just like, oh, here's this Bowie. Here's this Bowie. Here's this Bowie. Here's this Bowie. Yeah. Second Avenue sounds a little like the Kinks, especially in the verses. Yep. Skylark has that like quirky novelty song, kind of like Octopus's Garden, Beatles kind of thing going on. That's English dance hall, like, yep. kink, and also very Kinks like too. Mm -hmm. But then you've got things like Carry On, where that song kicks in, and then in the guitar solo or lead in that almost sounds like Boston. You're like, whoa, this is yeah. like straight out of AOR radio. So th there's just a lot of. There's a lot of um, just maybe too transparent um, tributes to the influences throughout this record. And I don't know that I picked up on them that clearly when they came out. Uh, but now in hindsight, it's a, it's it's pretty obvious. Well, it's funny you mentioned that, JT, because I'm like my notes for Carry On says cool tune. I could see this being a hit in 1978. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jeff, you're you were approaching this record completely fresh. Um, yeah. What were your let's start with your standout tracks in terms of the ones that really worked well for you? Goodbye, Violet Race, like I mentioned before, was definitely one of my favorites. Um, I liked Captain Freeman a lot. Um, that the mentioning that that you had a kind of a kinks reference was was dead on. I really liked that tune. And then as I look through the track listing, yeah, I liked Seven, Second Avenue too. I mean, I, again, there, there are some like really good and poppy songs like on this record, and it's it's an again, it's it has a lot of different directions, but there are definitely you know some songs that kind of stick in your head after you listen to it a couple times, which is which is a good thing. I think one of what did you guys think about Beautiful Girl, the closing track? Um, I think it reminded me of. Um... A, you had a little bit of like pulp, this is hardcore going on, but then there was like this Vegas y kind of, I don't know, sense about it. So, I mean, I, I kind of I like it, but I don't, I don't know that it was a single if that's where you're going. No, I, it reminded me a little bit of also of Suede, like the yeah. coming up, yeah. you know, that era of Suede after Dogman Star when they were very clearly writing like pop hits and stuff like that and it kind of made me think oh i wish this i wish they had like honed in on that a little bit more where it was a, a little more focused a little more serious because like i feel like you know like skylark and and some of these anonymous and some of these other songs that are, are like kind of goofy <laughs> yeah yeah like i wish they had left those wherever <laughs> and kind of gotten a little bit more grandiose in their thinking
Uh, I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I think, um, and I'm trying to remember back, like the humor at the time, I think that might have been one of the things when this came out that I really didn't get. Right. That I struggled with with the record. Now, uh, I think I get it more. Maybe it's just I'm, I just, I don't know, listen to more music and I get the references more and I've just listened, I don't know, had the opportunity to listen to more music. So it's just, you know, there's a point to be able to, uh, identify with, with some of the different humor that's, that's on the record. But, um, what was your take, Jeff, hearing it with fresh ears on some of the quirkiness and the, I guess the humor to it. Yeah. You know, some, some of that quirkiness didn't bother me, although I will say, um, and Tim mentioned it briefly earlier, the track nine, which is Almond Kisses, which is, you know, features Michael Stipe. Um, I just couldn't help but think after I listened to that song a few times that like this will sound kind of awful, but like that was such a wasted opportunity. Yeah. Of having a song yeah. with Michael Stipe on it um, for it to be that song. So like to me, that like is where the quirkiness kind of took a wrong turn that. Yeah. Um, yep. Like, ugh, like really. It made me it like it, it was painful. Like it's I mean the song's not that awful, but it's just painful again thinking that Michael Stipe is on that song. Like, I just couldn't help but wonder like how that came about and how Michael Stipe would feel about singing <laughs> that song. Me too. <laughs> my my notes on that song are that um it sounds like an Am Jams uh, parody by Christopher Guest, Michael McKean, and Harry Shearer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like they're gonna write a seventies soft rock song and, and it that's sounds like a happen. jingle. Like it's like it, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Like a candy bar jingle. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but uh, for me, for Beautiful Girl, to me, that's like the one song on this album that sounds like it could have come off a of Resident Alien. And actually, it's very similar in style to a song on that album called Shipwrecked, where it's just kind of the slow, moody ballad and the big electric guitar kind of kicks in in the middle there. But it's out of, out of this whole album, that's the one song that sounds anything like the first album, really. Sand in Your Eyes kind of has a moody, slinky kind of feel to it as well. Yeah. I, I don't think that song really goes anywhere, but I like the sound of it. I, I like the band in that space as well. Yeah, That's the one to me that sounded like Berlin era David Bowie. Yeah. Like it, or like it could have come off a of station to station. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely felt like um, on that song and a couple other ones that you could, they could not... I don't know if they thought that they could get this close to Bowie and nobody would because it's been a while since Bowie sounded like that, you know, and he's like he's making heathen and he's making earthling and he's making, you know, albums with Trent Reznor. So he doesn't sound anything like that anymore. So I I mean, they just thought, oh, well, we can sound like that because he doesn't sound like that anymore. Where if they just legitimately like could not help it, that they were going to make a glammy sounding you know 70s bowie sounding record or t-rex also was a lot in here and i wish um so we we reviewed uh the scott weiland record recently and and the i think the chances he took with the production on that record makes maybe some material that's subpar average kind of stand out and i wish that they would have done more of that on this record it's like it's too pretty and clean. Like, yeah. you know, I, I wish they would have pushed things a little bit more on the production side. And, um, it just, I wish that was as fun and as quirky as the songwriting is. Um, instead it's a very like just 
classic straight up like rock production with lots of keyboards and strings and um just really you know pretty tones and i think the combination of the two it just doesn't quite if you're going to experiment and do something weird like it doesn't quite meet the music in the right place well and i i think a lot of what really saves the average songs is that royston langdon the lead singer who's also the bass player which i didn't know that until i watched the video for mungo city he he has such a big powerful voice with such a unique at least for this time sound that he can turn like any phrase into a chorus even if it's not all that interesting so while he's got a there's i don't know what he's saying in terms of like if there's actually anything very interesting being said on this record or if it's just you know a bunch of him just coming up with cool melodies and fitting words into that all that because i didn't nothing really sat with me in terms of you know other than a a hook that was it like the, the verses on this record aren't particularly strong to me it's like they're just getting to them getting through them to get to choruses that he nails you weren't drawn in by uh, the line on Second Avenue where he says it makes me want to spew. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, "What? No, 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 no!" That's that rhymes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, some of the tunes were also written by his uh, brother Anthony, um, who actually I think was the guy who started the band. Royston came in later um, when they actually decided they were going to put it in. Because I believe what happened was is Anthony met the drummer when they were both in New York and then they said, Hey, let's form a band. And then they brought in Royston and they brought in the, the uh, lead guitar player to the band. So does he sing on Skylark? Cause that sounds like a different voice. Uh, that's the, that's the drummer, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, 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 it's Johnny Craig or something like that. Yeah. So it is octopus's yeah. garden. Yeah. <laughs> Ringo's singing. Yeah. And you mentioned about them, you know how the band formed. They were, even though they're, well, the the brothers are both from the UK. Are are the is everybody from the UK or is it? They're, just, they're all from the UK, yeah. But they formed in New York City, and that's right. where they got signed. The sire uh, was in New York City, so they had no sort of history as as a band in, in the UK. Even though they sound like a very British band yeah. in a lot of ways, um, which had me thinking about. You know, other artists who have, and this happened in the 90s with like Bush. Bush had very little impact in the UK, and then they caught on in the US. And that's where they really made their impact as a band. And there's been other bands and artists who have done that throughout rock history. It's not uncommon that yeah. someone has to leave their country and they get discovered somewhere. I mean, Jimi Hendrix famously was in the UK for a long time before he got popular and then came back to the united states but in the uh, 80s in the 80s you had the outfield who most people didn't even realize were british band but they were they were yeah i I thought they were canadian no british but they're named after like a baseball reference right yeah field yep and they don't play they were they they were they were a british band uh who got their success in the states before they got their success in their own country so I, I don't know if that had anything to do with the fact that when this second album came out and it tanked here, it also tanked huge 
in the UK. And, and one thing that the UK is good at in terms of, especially in the nineties was building up their bands in the UK press with, you know, the enemy and melody maker and all those things. If having no history there, there's no press to like, you know, there's no rivalry with another band. There's no guys running around London and dating Patty Kensett and all that kind of stuff. It's like they're a New York city band. So they're just one of a billion bands in New York. I wonder if that had some impact on them, uh, you know, having having zero success with this record, uh, both in the U.S. and U.K. Also, I think at some point the lead singer was married to or engaged to Liv Tyler. Yeah, they have a kid together. Oh, they do. Okay. Yeah, son, and they were I think they were together like seven or eight years. Yep. Yeah, they were married too. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they seem to like, even though this album didn't do anything and they kind of, you know, they got dropped from their label and uh, ended up signing with a smaller label to pull out the Hogacy and then broke up. Apparently they went into like like film and music scoring and stuff like that and had some success outside of the actual music industry, but in in other aspects making music. And then uh, I think the brothers or one i think maybe it's royston is in like a joaquin phoenix movie from a couple it's years anthony back. oh it's anthony it, yeah okay but i haven't that seen that kind of makes sense because this record it is cinematic it's almost like well I, I i it feels like they wrote it as a record and almost didn't care like if there were singles and how individual songs i mean there's some pillars i think like every third or so song seems strong and then there's um there's definitely like senses of characters and scenes and even some of the way that some of the segues work from like track one to two it's a really quick transition in and the way the album sequences it it feels cinematic to me and some of this sounds like music you could hear in a movie or under you know credits or during certain scenes so it's it's kind of interesting. It sort of makes sense of maybe where they're better, uh, or are also you know skilled in applying their talent in, into working in, in music for movies, and TV. It's, it's interesting you brought that up because according to Wikipedia, and I did not know this until just preparing for this, was that originally this was supposed to be the soundtrack to a proposed movie called The Chinese Movie. Uh, and it was going to be about a band who moves to Hong Kong and tries to get success there. But apparently the band did not like the screenplay at all. So it got canceled and they just made the record and called it the Chinese, um, the Chinese album instead. Or actually, it wasn't the Chinese movie. It was supposed to be called Mungo City was going to be the name of the movie. And then it got changed to the Chinese movie. And then they just called the album the Chinese album instead. Wow. Huh. Okay. Killing back funny. the onion. <laughs> that's funny because I, ne- I, ne- I never understood like the whole like album title and it seemed to be like alluding to something and making some kind of statement or for some purpose but never quite connected all the dots but there you go that, that it, makes sense it, now. it doesn't say that that may have been what caused the delay between the record but that could have possibly been why it took three years instead of two or one to have a follow up record Wow, that's now that's a key piece of information that I was not aware of, and that uh, that definitely could put a, a huge like damper on 
know, if this record was supposed to come out, or if they if they wanted to have a record come out a year or two earlier, they might have actually been able to follow up the, you know, the huge single a little bit quicker. But that's uh, that's pretty ballsy on your second record to be like, we're gonna score a film. <laughs> I mean, you just had one single. It's not like you don't have this big career. Not Elton John writing stuff for, or Phil Collins for Disney movies or what have you. Like, got to uh, got to pace yourself there. Get a couple albums under your belt before you try to pull something yeah. like that off. I I kind of like the premise of this movie. I I want to see this movie get made. <laughs> yeah, it might actually in in the context of what this album sounds like, it might actually make sense then. I wonder if it was like going to be like a comedy, like a monkeys type thing where they all go and live in the same house. And so were they supposed was... to be in the movie? Yeah. Oh, wow. Huh? Well, then that makes sense. Why they're, they have like sort of film connections because they clearly like were aiming towards that world pretty quickly, which makes sense. Cause Bowie had a big, you know, he had, he had quite a film career from, Labyrinth to uh, Tesla. La- Labyrinth. <laughs> no, he played. He played Tesla in uh, that uh, film well, it, or that Nolan Absolute movie. Beginners and uh, yeah. Oh God, he was in a bunch of different stuff. He, he was in a, a whole bunch of movies throughout his career, plus the live movies and things like the documentaries that were made about him, like Cracked Actor and that yeah. sort of thing. So that's Labyrinth. Labyrinth. Hey, Labyrinth. Yeah, that one. <laughs> you guys remember that movie? That was a good movie. I did see that. That's my that's my wife's favorite movie, and we have the soundtrack on vinyl. Nice. I bought it as a gift for her because she's such a huge fan of that movie. Um, I did see it in the theater, sadly. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. I don't. I don't. I don't really remember the movie at all. But I. I definitely don't know if I saw it in the theater or not. Probably not. So let's put this into like our sort of normal uh rating system just because i want to get an idea of where you guys stand do you do you think this is a worthy record in terms of should people check this out we've mentioned that there's some definitely some issues with it but it's also an interesting record um i'm not sure where we're at so is it a worthy record yeah. is would it be better if it was reduced down to an ep or where are we where are we thinking on this jeff i'm gonna start with you yeah, I don't think this could be reduced to an EP because I don't know which direction that EP would go. I feel like you could probably make two or three EPs out of this record, if that makes sense, as far as the musical direction, um, because it takes so many twists and turns throughout the record. Um, you know, oddly enough, with everything that we've said about the record and kind of pointed out some of the flaws that we think it might have, overall, I actually enjoy the record. Um, like it's again, like it may be inconsistent at times and it may go in different directions, um, that might not have it feel as cohesive as maybe some listeners would want it to feel, but overall I enjoy the record, um, you know, kind of as a, a total, you know, piece of artwork. And I I would, I would suggest that folks check it out only to, you know, again, for folks who are familiar with this band through Resident Alien, I feel like this is such a, a stark contrast to that record um, that, you know, just to kind of get that full scope of what this band did. I think it's I think it's worthy of 
checking out. Okay, so definitely not a sophomore slump in your mind is what I is what I'm gathering. Yeah, and I would kind of add to that as far as it not being a sophomore slump in that, you know, I don't know what kind of pressures were on them at the time, if any, but, you know, they really could have made a second album that could have been, you know, 12 tracks of In the Meantime. And maybe it would have sold a whole lot of copies of records. Um, But they didn't do that. I feel like they took some risks and, you know, some risks paid off better than others as far as some of the individual songs on this record. Um, But I think it's noteworthy to kind of highlight that, you know, they took some risks, um, you know, ultimately paid the price for it as far as, you know, getting dropped by a major label. But I think it's I think it's, you know. I I think it's noteworthy that they took some risks on this record. Some of them are, you know, made great songs and some are, you know, okay. To be fair, they got dropped by Elektra and Elektra did not have the best reputation with uh, from what we've gathered, uh, earning their nickname Neglectra. So, uh, Joe, where where do you stand? Where do you fall or stand or fall on this record? There's a lot of things Jeff said I would agree with. Um, I think it's a worthy album. It's just, but it's it's just so different from Resident Alien. And I, I think that if it had come out maybe a year or two earlier and the band had gone on and done a great double bill with Imperial Drag, I think if you like Imperial Drag, you'll probably like a lot of this record. Or if you liked, you brought up Velvet Goldmine. I think a lot of the songs in this sound like they could have been on that soundtrack. Um, if you like that, if you like Bowie, you, you would probably dig a lot of what's on this record, but I'm, I'm thinking, you know, as a commercial album, it was definitely a failure. I'm sure electric or the, the sire, whoever it was on the record, got this and listened to it and go, how the hell did we market this in 1998? And they didn't know what to do with it. So they just picked what they thought was like the most possibly commercial successful single threw it out there. And when it didn't stick, they just like, okay, we're done. You know, but it's it's a decent record. And, and I agree with the, Jeff that it takes a lot of chances. I think that maybe they probably felt like, well, we've got we've got this hit. So now we can kind of do what we want to do. And that was the, me- the record they made instead. Instead of, like he said, making another album of 12 more in the meantime. So like we're, we, we got that. Now we're going to make this, you know. Interesting. Yeah. Jay, I want to get your thoughts before I wrap up. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in the middle. Uh, I agree with a lot of the points made. Um, I literally have every other song in this record sort of highlighted as, is that I like it. So, um, n- I'm, I'm not, I'm being completely, uh, honest that based on my notes, now that I'm looking at it is every other one is bold, meaning I liked it. Uh, so I think you have to take it as an album. I don't think you can cut half the songs off because it is a statement collectively and you know we we see a couple themes that emerge on these second records one is the band rushes in the studio pieces together you know half-baked material and puts the record out then there's this story which is you know have a big hit get a bunch of money a bunch of interest and they basically take advantage of that situation to the in every possible way. So they're off making a movie apparently and uh, spending three years making this record, which is very ambitious. Um, if you like, uh, I think like Joe said, you know, the early seventies glam uh, Bowie, I think you'll like 
checking this record out and and I would recommend, you know, just kind of closing your eyes and just kind of going for the trip for, for all 12 tracks. And it's, it's pretty short record. It's only 40 minutes. Yeah. Um, if you were a fan of in the meantime, I don't know, you might not dig this. So I mm-hmm. think this is more, um, more on the, you know, folks that are into the classic rock clam stuff from the seventies, a little bit experimental, um, very ambitious. I think if you're into that kind of thing, you should definitely check the record out. I need to apologize to Electra. They were not on Electra. They were on Sire, Warner Brothers. So that was an error. It's in uh, Wikipedia. Whoever wrote that up, they need to have their rights taken away. Uh, <laughs> I think Sire was being distributed by Electra at the time, though, if I remember right. So that might be half right. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Now there's only like two record labels, so it's not as confusing. So it makes life a lot easier. <laughs> it's all the Spotify same parent and Apple company. Music. Yeah. Water Electric, Water Electric just, Atlantic, Wea. So it's all the same parent company. There's anyway. only two. There's like there's iTunes and there's Spotify. There's only like two labels. <laughs> uh, I, I just want to wrap up with saying I agree that I think this record is worthy as a interesting document. I'm not sure that all the songs are up to par, but they do oddly work all together in this like weird way. Um, I'd still probably, if I had my druthers, I would cut two songs like instantly. Um, those being uh, Skylark and Anonymous, those would be gone. I think you take those two out and it's a little less quirky to the point where it, it kind of becomes, a, a, to me, a more cohesive record without a lot of reservation. So I'd like to hear it uh, as a soundtrack, but what Jay? So I, I just wanted to, um, so the funny just happened. I, uh, I Googled Sire Electra yeah. and you know, Google gives you five images like preview images, right? There's a, there's a picture of a goat. There's a CD caught by a band called Deadsy. There's a picture of a horse and then there's the first space hog album. <laughs> <laughs> next to another picture which is a llama <laughs> so based on this information i think we're both right it is both a llama and a sire and electra okay <laughs> uh all right that's a that's a no that's a but great apparently they were they were merged okay in some way they're affiliated so yes Gotcha. And Tim, I did have something that I wanted to add just because I think it's relevant to yes. the show. Anyone who's listening to this that is a fan of Space Hog, um, Royston Langdon, you know, the the bassist and singer of that band, is actually about to put out his first solo record oh. um, under the moniker called Leeds, um, L-E-E-D-S. And um, it comes out in early May of this year. Um and I've had a chance to spend some time with it. And it's it's um, it's very it's interesting. Like it's it's almost like, again, thinking about like taking risks and it's stuff. So it's a record that has some stuff that you wouldn't expect from a record from him. Um, you know, Does his voice. Is, no, there's no rap, but there he definitely there is definitely a, a tune or two where you have kind of like the, um, you know, adult elevator music saxophone you know, kind of come into it, which I was not expecting. Um, but his voice, I mean, I just think he has such a great 
voice and um you know there's definitely some good tunes on that so i just wanted to mention that because you know folks who are listening to this are are at very least interested in space hog and and that record comes out here in another month or so well that's interesting timing because we just did the james record and then like the day that we recorded the episode they announced they were putting out a new ep so it's always nice when this lines up with people actually releasing stuff because it uh yeah. helps draw some attention to the uh, yeah. to the episodes but yeah, thanks for that uh, that info, and I I want to check that out. So, yeah. is it uh, is it streaming anywhere yet, or uh, how'd you get your hands no, on that? But, what are you uh, on the you on some sort of darknet torrenting um, things? No, no, I'm not on the darknet of <laughs> '90s alt rock solo records. Um, I just the I I. Uh, I I'm on the email list of the PR guy for for that record, and ah. I told him that I was doing this and he sent it to me. We need to get Sweet. on some PR lists. We're not on any yeah, of those do... things. How do you do that? How do you, how do people get those things? Uh, yeah, I mean, I can probably help you. That was more, that was more rhetorical, but yeah, if you want to do that, that would be, that'd be great. We, we <laughs> yeah. Just me ranting at the windmills, throwing my fist <laughs> in the air. Like send me some MP3s. Damn it. <laughs> I want to hear some advanced Royston solo material. Yeah, me too. I'm in, I'm very interested to hear this album. Now. Yeah, especially with the saxophone. Well, and that's a Bowie thing again. A lot of his stuff has saxophone yeah. on it. Yeah, so. he played. He was a sax player. But people forget that. Yep. All right, gents. This was a. Uh, an interesting episode. I think we kind of redeem this record in terms of its massive critical, not critical. I shouldn't say that. I, I didn't read any reviews. Um, massive uh, sales failures in terms of not being able to follow up in any way, shape or form the success of the debut record. But from a musical standpoint, I think this is a record people could probably give a listen to and, and come away with something they might like. Um, so I want to point to our, our website because we, uh, you know, we don't really plug it that often. But at digmeoutpodcast.com, if you go to our uh, sl- uh, forward slash special dash guest section, you will find pages for both Jeff and Joe that link to all their various uh, doings, their their websites, their Facebooks, their Twitters, their. Um, Whatever they're, whatever they're up to, you can go find all about it via that, or you could just, you know, go directly to them. But we, we'd like the clicks. So, uh, we, I, I, Jay, do we get to monetize that in some way, shape, or form? <laughs> yes. We're putting uh, Amazon ads all over those clicks for Joe. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> That's fine. Please <laughs> take advantage of it. Yeah, it's a nice way for people to understand who's on the show, and right. if they want to reach out, they can reach out. But uh, and you can also stitch, see stitching it together every previous episode that they've been on. So if you, you know, for example, if you go to, um, oh, there's so many people we've had like over 100 people on, and now I'm like trying to find oh, uh, where where the heck uh, either of them are. Oh wait, there's Joe. So if you go to Joe and you click on his profile, doing this in real time. You can you can click on the Facebook link, but then you can also go to see all the episodes. So if you want to go to his Guitar Gods in the '90s episode and listen to him on that one, you can. Kiss in the '90s, 
uh, Silver Chair, Bush, Soundtracks, One Hit Wonders, all sorts of episodes that Joe's been on over the last, uh, uh, let's see, going back to 2015. Wow. Yeah. Back Jeff's been on uh, Silver Chair, Ruth Ruth, Veruca Salt, Sponge. Albums of 97, Emo in the 90s, Albums of 96, Concerts in the 90s. Man, you guys have really, uh, you've been on more episodes than me. We've got some frequent flyer miles going. <laughs> you do. This, this is like, we're going to have to come up with like a, a color jacket system where you get like, you know, when you're, <laughs> when you win the Masters, you get the yellow jacket. We'll have to uh, come up with uh, various, like, uh, you know, when you reach 10 episodes. Then you get uh, the uh, the blue jacket. But nothing says '90s music like a nice sport coat. Right, exactly. That's right. <laughs> I feel like if it's going to be '90s music related, that one of the jackets, maybe the pinnacle, would be hypercolor. Hmm. Oh wow. Yeah. At least the liner. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, Jeff. Tell people just uh, quickly where they can go to find you on the internets. Yeah, um, rocketfuelpodcast.com is the website and uh yeah check it out if you want and joe how about you where should people go uh you can find me at sit and spin with joe on facebook twitter youtube and instagram excellent gentlemen thanks for coming back it's always a pleasure and uh, i want to tell the folks out there if they like what they heard they can go to itunes and leave us some positive feedback they can join us at patreon patreon.com forward slash dig me out and for jay i'm tim We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com. Does it make we all end up in the same room? To dream of love or to dream of pain. The prince or a papa, the doctor or a leper. They all end up feeding worms one of these days. One of these days.